Hey, I'm Jess Binneth. And I'm Kate Montague. And you're listening to the Audio Craft Podcast, a series of recordings from our 2017 conference. It was a day when radio makers and podcasters from all over Australia came together and met up in Sydney to get super, super nerdy. We talked about how to build great audio stories, the craft of sound design, and all the really techie stuff. This episode was our final session on the day, our keynote with Eric Newsom. We'd all just spent the day listening to great audio stories and learning heaps from some pretty amazing producers, and then Eric stepped in to wrap up the day and share some insights about where we're at as an industry. He also let us in on a few secrets about what he reckons successful podcasts share in common. Eric's the Senior Vice President of Original Content Development at Audible. Before joining Audible, he was the Vice President for Programming at NPR. When he was there, he created a number of really well-known shows like Invisibilia, TED Radio Hour and Ask Me Another. Hi. So the reason I'm standing here is I am a lifelong radio producer who has loved deconstruct things for fun. I used to take my toys apart so I could see how they worked when I was a little kid. And I basically spend my time creating things and then thinking about creating things. And I go home and to relax, I think about more about creating things. The other day I was uh, at home sitting in a window, sitting looking out a window, and my wife came up to me and said, what are you thinking about? I said, you know, if cereal had come out four months earlier, it would never have been the cereal we know. And she looked at me, she's like, what the? are you talking about? She thought I meant like breakfast cereal. She didn't even know I was talking about the podcast cereal. And until I started to tell her that, no, 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 no. But the real thing that made cereal popular was that six weeks before iOS 8 came out, which had the podcast app installed in the default operating system. So overnight for, for millions and millions of people, listening to a podcast changed from seven steps, including one of the steps is downloading an app, to two steps, and no app download. It was already there. So you had all that, you shortened that distance between awareness and, and listening, and that's what made Serial possible. And my wife just looked at me, just kind of, okay, enjoy your time in the window, and then left me alone. So I, I, I spent a lot of time making, you know, people know me, my work from the work I make, but I spend most of my time thinking about how that work is made. And so, you know, today I, I assume you've had the same effect on you that it's had on me. There's, you've heard a lot of inspiring things. Perhaps it's inspired you to think about your own work. And so I'm here to kind of share with you ideas that I use to take something from an idea to actually being reality and a really, really good reality and how you make that possible. So I'm going to share with you a bunch of stuff, play with you some tape, but it all starts with this picture. And does everybody know who this man is? And I kind of give it away where it says Iggy Pop. This poster has been hanging above my desk for 20 years. I think Iggy Pop is an inspirational person to me. Actually, uh, we have this, it is currently hanging in a conference room at Audible, and my staff puts little sticky notes next to his mouth, basically repeating off the things we've been talking about lately, like that edit needs work, or get, make it three minutes shorter, or those type of things. But I, I, I always have Iggy looking at me, looking at me saying, you're not working hard enough, you're not trying hard enough. One of the many things, you can tell many stories about Iggy Pop, one of them I'd like to share with you today is his hatred of broccoli. Iggy Pop hates broccoli so much that he will sometimes, for inspiration, tie a head of broccoli around his neck. So the proximity to the thing he hates 
inspires him. And if you think I'm lying, Google Iggy Pop Rockley and see what you see. The first result is when appearance on David Letterman, where he walks out with this huge head of broccoli. His contract rider includes a bowl of broccoli just so he can pick it up and throw it in the trash can before he walks out on stage. So I have my own version as a radio creator of Iggy's head of broccoli, and it is Richard Branson. <laughs> this is the other picture that hangs next to my desk. This picture of Richard, now I'm sure he's a nice guy, right? Does lots of great things, very successful. To me as an audio creator, he is the avatar for sameness. He was on 30 different podcasts last year. In fact, the number was probably higher than 30, but at 30, when I was counting, I got depressed and I couldn't do it anymore and I stopped counting. 30 times, someone thought, hey, I'm going to put Richard Branson on my podcast and that's a really good idea. And nobody cares that you have Richard Branson because Richard Branson is everywhere. And the truth is, as a guest like this who are everywhere, pick your podcast because you're going to ask soft questions and go easy on them and you're an easy place, way for them to get their message out with no pushback. So that's why people like Richard Branson are so available. And I keep that picture on my desk and I ask myself every day, am I doing whatever I'm working on's version of Richard Branson? <laughs> right? So how do you keep this from happening? When I think about every successful podcast that I've ever found, and by successful, let me be very clear in my definition of success. Success doesn't necessarily mean that millions of people listen to it. You can have a podcast that's meant for 100 people and 100 people listen to it and that's successful. But every podcast I feel has hit that level, level of success has had three characteristics. Story, character, and voice. And I'm going to walk you through each of these and explain why it is absolutely this simple to having a great idea. I'm, I'm kind of faking a little bit. It's actually compelling stories or ideas, engaging characters, and a unique voice. I'll explain what I mean by each of them. So a compelling story or an idea. Everything has to be about something. And the best things have the clearest and most cognitive self-idea of what they actually are about. I'll give you an example. My friend Heather, one night, was sitting with two of her friends with a bottle of whiskey, and they said, hey, I got a great idea. Let's use my iPhone. We're going to make a podcast. We're going to call it Whiskey Cats. Every episode of Whiskey Cats will feature us drinking a bottle of whiskey and talking about our cats. And over the course of the hour, they just get really, really drunk. And so they do this. And the first one, they literally recorded on their iPhone. I think on episode three, they bought a microphone and did this. And it actually was really fun to listen to. And every episode was exactly the same. They would pick out a different bottle of whiskey, and they would look at it, and they'd talk about it, and they'd, they'd kind of rate it or whatever, and they'd talk about their cats, because all three of them had cats. <laughs> In season two, there was a season two. <laughs> which is the amazing thing. And they, they branched out into uh, doing whiskey cocktails and talking about the cocktails and their cats. And their audience who listened to the podcast, and there was an audience that listened to the podcast, said, you should do the same thing. You should talk about tequila. Or you should talk about, you know, your relationships. Or you should talk about each other as friends. And they're like, no. Whiskey cats is about whiskey. It's about cats. That's it. And I bring this up all the time as an example because it's such a pure idea 
of what something is. People often confuse highbrow and high concept, and they're actually two different things. Highbrow is like, you know, elitist. High concept is something that's plain and simple and clear, and you can express it, and the person who's hearing it knows exactly what you mean. Before we get into to clarity of purpose specifically in an exercise that I often prescribe to people to get to clear purpose, I want to talk about audio. One of the things we, we, I hear you, you, I've heard you talk about all day and rarely do you acknowledge is that audio creation is a work of design. Audio creation is, an, it, it, design itself, if you look it up, it says something about intention towards purpose, right? And so you create something in order to get to a listener to a very specific place. I'm going to play with you a clip from a, um, a new uh, show we have out. I'm not even going to tell you what it's about because I want you to understand the experience you're about to hear. It is so incredibly deliberate. For the purposes of maintaining confidentiality in the therapy session you are about to hear, all names and identifiable characteristics have been removed. But their voices and their stories are real. We met each other in college in Opera Scenes Workshop, actually. Our director kept putting us in scenes together, and by the end of the, the term, we finally figured out that, oh, that romantic thing that you were doing, well, that was actually real. That wasn't uh, just acting. Desire and attraction, that has never been there for us. And we were part of what was called the Evangelical Purity Culture Movement of the late 90s. We have changed our views since then. We're both spiritual sort of people. I guess I tend more toward the atheistic side now. But it was really important to us to remain pure until marriage. My husband and I didn't kiss until we got engaged. And the night that I got engaged, I kissed him. And even though my heart and my head knew I was totally in love with this man, my body was screaming, no, this is not right. We're two survivors of childhood sexual abuse who managed to find one another, get married, and then find out that we were sexually mismatched. But not only that, we were sort of, you know, each of us within our own cauldron of sexual confusion and uh, dysfunction. Anytime I try to have sex with him, it, I feel like I'm forcing myself. It feels incestuous. Two years ago, my adult sexuality came bursting out. I ended up realizing that I really loved sex. I just did not love sex with my husband. She would like sex to be much more energetic. I'd like it to come out of a place where I feel safe. I'm not willing to walk away from my marriage. What I need to know is, can we learn to be attracted to one another? is the first two minutes of the first episode of Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel, who's a relationship therapist, and we actually record real therapy sessions with her, with her clients. They're made anonymous. Um, and every episode starts with a two-minute bit. That was actually one minute and 48 seconds, which is meant to get you in a very deliberate place from wherever you are in the monkey world, in monkey mind of your world, to a, on a couch in between two people about to have the most intimate and important conversation they're ever going to have. And every minute of what you heard, or every second actually, because it's only two, less than two minutes, every second was deliberate into place you, the listener, on, onto that couch. And you do this whether you realize it or not. The, the thing that I think makes ideas powerful is when you pull it out of the kind of like, oh, I just do it by nature, and you actually figure out and lay out how you create audio. A story is like a dark forest. When people say they're scared of the dark, by the way, they're not scared of dark. 
They're scared of possibility. Because when you're in the dark, you don't know what's there. Often your mind races to the worst possible places and sits there and just rattles through all the horrible things that could be in the dark. A story's like that too. There are millions of details, bits of information, rabbit holes, potential paths. And just like the person who's overwhelmed when they walk into a dark place, a, a listener can be overwhelmed by a story. You, as a storyteller, come with a guiding light. And you show them the path through the story to the destination they want. The light not only has the effect of providing the path, but it also blocks everything else out. So you're making that choice through a story or an idea to get a listener to a specific place. And it all happens, for the most part, it starts with understanding what you're actually doing. Taking the time to sit down and write out a statement of what you're doing. And the challenge of that is, you're not doing it to write a statement. You should sit down and write a, your, your, uh, your podcast, your story, in 10 words. And if you can't describe it in 10 words, you're not thinking clearly enough about what it is. And if you say, I can't possibly fit it into 10 words, then you're actually not making anything. You're just making random. The best things have the clearest idea. And by clear, it's avoiding jargon, it's avoiding broad language, because every time I sit down with people, and I do this all the time with creators, I do it anytime we're stuck, I make people write 10 words or less. What are we doing here? What are we making? And they always write the broadest possible language they can to give themselves the most wiggle room. And so I often refine it, and I say, describe in 10 words or less your project in a way that describes it and nothing else in the world. Earlier, we were hearing uh, uh, some people talk about being innovative in one of the sessions. I can't remember which the title of it, but um, they were talking about how they would take this great work um, in, and people would say, oh, it's not innovative enough. We've done this before. Go back and think of it again. That's actually a really, really good thing. How do you create something that hasn't been done before? It's actually very easy, and the key is just being specific. So I'll show you some examples from projects I've done in the past. Invisibilia. So when we launched Invisibilia, I was doing a little meeting for stations, because in the United States, uh, all the different 280 public radio stations all set their own schedules, and you basically have to sell them to take the, take the show. So I'm doing this, and I walk in, and I'm describing Invisibilia before anybody had ever heard it, and I said, it's very simple. Invisibilia is a narrative journey through the invisible forces that affect human behavior. Fifteen minutes later, Elise Spiegel, one of the hosts, walks in, hadn't heard what I said, sat down, the webinar host says to Elise, Elise, describe Invisibilia. And she says, oh, it's pretty easy. We, we describe it as a narrative journey through the invisible forces that affect human behavior. And everyone kind of looked and thought that was odd. Then Lulu Miller comes in, and she sits down, not having heard any of us. And she starts off with, whenever I'm telling people about my new show, I describe it as a narrative journey through the invisible forces that affect human behavior. And everyone started to laugh. And they didn't realize that that was on purpose, that when Invisibilia was just a little nut, we would sit in a room and go over and over and talk about every single word. And, the, and I don't know if you've listened to Invisibilia, you can imagine those were long conversations trying to figure out that we, I mean, we argued over the word um, invisible forces. Um, uh, there was an effect in here, effect here, was, was, that was a huge word we argued with, is effect really the right word? And we spent so much time, it became like our mantra, like a prayer. And every time a story was brought up to be included in Invisibilia, we'd say, does that story match that? And if it did, it could stay. 
If it didn't, it should go on somebody else's show. Right? That's 11 words. <laughs> Shit. Hey, there are 33. Okay, so forget it. So we'll just take one off. But I also don't let people include that. The show totally get those words for free. Is that really 11? One, two, three, four, five, six. It depends on whether you count. You're getting too specific. So this, so, so uh, this is, you're ruining my vibe here. Okay, so, uh, so uh, TED Radio Hour, this is when the exercise was to be, were you the one who said that? No, it wasn't me. Who was it? It was you, okay. So for this one, it was 10 seconds instead of 10 words. So this is actually 14 words, which is what we use to describe uh, TED Radio Hour. It's probably 16 and you're going to count and I don't have time to check, so we're just going to take it for 10 to 14 words. Fascinating ideas, astonishing inventions, fresh approaches to new problems and ways to think and create. It, of, of the 10,000 TED Talks we had access to and the speakers we were going to use as the kernel to make all the episodes of TED Radio Hour, I'm sure a couple of you have heard it. If it couldn't do that, it wasn't on the show. Period. One of my favorite TED Talks of all times is a guy who washes his hands and then shakes them 12 times, and that way he only has to use one tiny piece of paper towel, and he figured out how many trees he was saving if everybody just did that. And it's, it's a brilliant, right? And it didn't quite fit. So, so we didn't use it. So I, I'm still resentful of that five years later. So um, I think I have, uh, there's a sleep talker, which I think some probably in this room produces. It's one of, the, one, of the, one of the podcasts I listened to to kind of understand a little bit before I came down here. They do this without even realizing they're doing it. All over everything they do, they talk about the sleep talkers, about sleep, dreams, nightmares, and what happens in your head after dark. Now, this seems really easy. I can write out 10 words. Try. It's hard. That, that everything has to filter through. I, um, one time I went to um, New Hampshire Public Radio, they do a podcast called Outside In Radio that um, they had been working on for 10 months and uh, they just could not figure out, they just couldn't get something they all liked, they felt was really alive and vivid, had spark to it. So I sat down and said, okay, don't look at each other's paper, write your 10 word statements. I explained it to them, they did, they struggled through it, they wrote it and then they read them and they were producing four different shows which is why they couldn't agree on it, why they couldn't get anything. So it's like, you know, and so we spent three hours coming up with their 10 words or less. That if you go to their website, it's written right across the top because that is a declaration of who they are. They, you know, sometimes you could use it as a marketing phrase. I actually encourage people not to use marketing sounding language or promotional language. Usually when I do a longer version of this talk, I put a list up of 40 words that can never appear in these descriptions. If you email me or tweet at me, I'll send you a link to it. But it's stuff like beautiful or interesting or in-depth because those words mean nothing, right? If you ask yourself, what do those words mean? That's your real answer. So um, it's not just radio programs that benefit from this idea of high concept and clarity. The movie Snakes on a Plane, <laughs> you know, that's not 11 words. That's, you know, and even better yet, you have Sharknado, one word. And they not even, they, they even embrace it and said, you know, enough said. Like, <laughs> Sharknado, that explains everything you need to know about that movie, right? The clearest ideas resonate. Snakes on a Plane, Sharknado, you don't have to explain what that movie's about, right? So how do you Sharknadoize your podcast? And think about it, and that, how can you do that? And the exercise of doing that, you will learn so much. You won't just end up with a, a filter and a mantra. You'll learn so much about what you're doing because it's really hard to think, to focus yourself in something that both encapsulates what you do and provides you with a clear enough view that you can hand it to somebody else and they could grade your 
work to see if you are actually honoring that statement. So story, character, advice, compelling stories or ideas. Remember, it doesn't, not everything needs to be narrative. You can have a, an idea can be two people sitting in a room having a conversation about whiskey and cats or cheese or chameleons. There is a podcast about chameleons. Vampires from the 15th century, there is a podcast about that. Um, my mother is a quilter, and she has a variety of quilting podcasts she listens to. There's a podcast for everything. It's always about an, it can be about an idea. It doesn't have to be a story, but the clarity of it is what's most important. Engaging characters. Characters can be a host. It can be co-hosts. It can be the characters that appear inside your stories. They become the avatar for your compelling idea, for your, what your story is about. They represent what it is. You can even go as far down as to say, does this conversation honor my statement? Does this character play into the statement? We have a series that's coming out this fall, which is about a 20-year-old unsolved murder in, in West Cork, Ireland, which is just an amazing story with a thousand rabbit holes. And we wrote a 10-word statement that I can't remember specifically, but it was something along the lines of, an unsolved murder reveals the true character of a town, which is really what happens. You think you're listening to a podcast about a murder, and it really, like, by the third or fourth episode, you realize that that's not the most interesting thing. It's the kind of, like, the, the, when the rock got lifted up because of this murder, what scampered around. And so every scene we're doing, we're still working on it, every scene we're doing, every character that's in it, does that forward this idea that the murder is not as important as the town? And so that kind of provides us with a roadmap. You can do that too. So I'm going to play you another piece of tape to show you how characters illustrate ideas. Um, this is from a series that's coming out in July from uh, Audible called The Butterfly Effect. John Ronson, who's an author, some of you may have heard of him, I see some shaking heads. It starts with the idea of there was a teenager in Brussels in the 90s, no, excuse me, not the 90s, early 2000s, he came up with an idea of how to give porn away on the internet for free, started a company, that company now controls 80% of the porn in the world, 80% of the porn, and nobody here watches porn, but all the people elsewhere who watch porn, you go to a thousand different sites and they're all controlled by one company. They've revolutionized and taken over the porn industry with this idea of making it so porn can be for free. And so what the series does is it looks at all the ripple effects of that decision. Things that were changed as a result of not even realizing that it was connected to it in the first place. One of the uh, avenues we follow down is looking at a rather small nuance in that giving something away for free. The pornography used to be something only adults could access online because you needed a credit card to get behind a paywall. Now children have access to pornography. And what happens? So I play you a bit of tape. I don't like to set up bits of tape, but I'm going to do it in this case because it's important for you to hear it. We found a young man who at 18 texted an explicit photo that he got off a free porn site to his 17-year-old girlfriend. He has a learning disability and uh, was prosecuted as uh, distributing pornography to a minor and at age 18 ended up on the sex offender registry for the next 25 years. So John goes and has a conversation with him about his life. So what do you do with your life now? There's really nothing I can do. I don't leave my room, I play video games, or I sleep, work on my book, or I just stare at my four walls. What book? It's the Sex Offender Group Therapy book. Oh, it's a book that you're reading, not writing. He has to read and write into it. Am I allowed to see the book? I have no problem showing it to you, I just gotta go get it. Nathan vanishes into his bedroom and returns holding a bulky textbook 
like a coursework book with pages of typed questions and spaces where he's handwritten his answers. This is chapter nine, sexual history autobiography. List all locations other than your home where you have engaged in sexual activities throughout your life. And you wrote... None. Just text messaging, which meant sex messaging. And then, have you ever had or tried to have any sexual contact with animals? And I put, no, never. Have you ever dressed in clothing of the opposite sex? No. Have you ever set fires for fun or sexual arousal? I put, no. Did you ever wet the bed? Once or twice, but that was when I was two years old. Have you ever forced someone or tried to force someone to have sex with you? This includes verbal threats, physical threats or force, blackmail, bribery, verbal pressure. At first I put no, never, because I got confused. But when I went back to group, they helped me understand that sending the pics from my cell phone and the messages so you wrote, Right, so you wrote... Sending the pictures from my cell phone and the messages that I sent my victim. Have you ever participated in or attempted sexual activity where urine or feces was involved? And I put ill now. <laughs> So the question is, at what age was your first sexual experience? And your answer is still a virgin. 18 years old when he was convicted, or the incident happened, he's 22. He's on the sex offender registry for the next 23 years. He can't hold a job. He can't live within 500 feet of a school or public place. There's a town next to him in order to keep all sex offender registers out went and, 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 and tried to get little plots of land declared parks so they would become the 500-foot zone and did it all over town. He lives in a mobile park with all the other sex offenders in his, in his, in his county um, on the outskirts of town. He becomes an avatar for an idea. And when you have a character in a narrative, you, the, they become vivid and they become effective for your idea. Um, a host also becomes effective for an idea. And this happens a lot in, in conversations I'm sorry if that was difficult tape, by the way. I, I should have prefaced. Uh, and and a host in a conversational podcast becomes the avatar for the idea, or the or the even if it's two people sitting around. Um, another podcast I found, an Australian podcast, which is very charming, called a Mic Check, which is two guys sitting around talking about Mike Myers movies, <laughs> and that that's a clear concept. And they're there to talk about Mike Myers movies as long as they don't start talking about Damien, whoever's movies. That they're, they're fine, right? So compelling story, uh, characters, hosts that are, are compelling um, and engaging and really bring the listener into your idea. The third is a unique voice. And this is one of the things that I think is very important because in the podcasting community, podcasting community is actually two communities that are smacked together. And even in this room, these two communities exist. One, um, which I've heard referred to pejoratively today as the professional podcasters or the big high production podcasts, which are things like the things that I make or Radiolab or things from the RN or, or, or ABC um, that are really kind of very professionalized podcasts that use podcasting as a platform and they may appear on other platforms as well, but they are big productions, staffs, budgets, those type of things. And the others are what I call the tribe podcasts people who come together because of, of an interest or, or a shared sense of community, and that that podcast becomes the, the connecting point for people who are interested in that or those characters. And a unique voice to me means two things. They basically boil down to, do you belong? 
Like, do you, is what you're creating, you know, there's, uh, so there's a radio show that's very popular in the United States called Car Talk. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, a number of you have. Two brothers from Boston, thick Boston accents, they're pretending to take calls about cars, but they're really talking about people and relationships, and it's very fun and very humorous. Um, it tanked as a podcast, because it was really set up to be a radio show, and it didn't sound organic as being a podcast. And it didn't feel like, you know, uh, I have many times created things that appear on multiple platforms, but they were designed to appear on multiple platforms. And unique voice also, the second meaning too, which kind of plays into that, is that you have something to say. You, there's something that you're trying to say that, is on, that you are the only person that can say it, right? And it doesn't mean necessarily that you are an opinionated person or that you're looking at, you're doing journalism without worrying about being objective and fair. It means that you, that you have got a position and an idea that you are putting forward and you are the person that has it. So I'm going to play you this clip from TED Radio to talk about a unique voice because the clip you're going to hear um, it was, again, very, very deliberate act of design to kind of express the creator's point of view on the subject of the show. So one day, a few years ago, an MIT professor named Cherry Turkle saw something that would change almost everything she believed because up until that point, Sherry Turkle was the poster child for the tech revolution, literally. I was on the cover of Wired magazine. The April 1996 issue, and she was a total evangelist for all the new ways we were interacting with technology. My idea was that we would use what we learned in the virtual world to better our lives in the real world. Anyway, that day, Sherry went to a nursing home. It was outside Boston. And she went there to see something absolutely amazing. Sherry and her graduate students would watch an elderly patient at that home interact with a robot, a sociable robot named Paro. It looked like a baby harp seal. Okay. It had fur, it had big eyes with large eyelashes. Pretty eyes. It knew language enough to respond sort of appropriately. Yeah, how are you? If you were sad, it made, you know, kind of comforting, sad noises. You are sweetie, you know. I mean, it was designed to comfort the elderly. And this robot was with an older woman who'd lost a child. And there was a group of us standing around, my research assistants, the, the head of the nursing home, bunch of nurses, uh, to watch the reaction of this older woman. And she was pouring out her heart about losing this child. And she was comforted by this robot. This robot made her feel understood. It was amazing that the researchers couldn't believe how well this old woman was responding to a robot, to Paro. I looked around and saw that this was being appreciated as progress. Everyone who was in that room started to imagine the possibilities. Paro as friend to old people, to lonely people, to kids in hospitals. Sherry Turkle was right there and she was watching it all happen right before her eyes. And I felt profoundly depressed. This was a, a tremendous emotional turning point for me in my research. Everything you heard was manipulating you uh, to this. You, even the music, which gets progressively faster and kind of more bright, and things are kind of building up, and she's having this conversation with a robot, and it's bringing you to the point of, like, you're there, like, wow. And then it switches to make a point. The thing that made her so upset was that robots were replacing human interaction. 
The person who's providing love and empathy to this older woman should be a human being, not a robot. And the whole episode we did of TED Radio Hour was about the dangers of robotics, and like what, the type of technology we're developing. And obviously in that piece, we have a perspective that there are dangers or at least that there are things that need to be discussed. And we owned that and built that into the entire flow of the show. And also speaking to the other definition of voice, I don't know if any of you have ever heard TED Radio Hour. It's built, it was designed from the first day we started working on it to be a radio show that felt like it belonged on the radio and a podcast that felt like it was organic to the podcast. And you can't tell when you listen to the podcast that there are breaks built into that for radio stop sets and it has a specific length and so on and so forth. We designed it so that when someone listened to a podcast, they weren't listening to a second distribution of the podcast. It was one of the primary intentions. TED Radio Hour was the first podcast that NPR distributed where its podcast audience exceeded its radio audience. It started off being a radio show with a podcast, became a podcast with a radio show, and now today, the audience for the digital version of the show is four times the size of the radio audience. So that's an example of both uh, uh, definitions of unique voice. It is taking a perspective in how it's constructing itself for the, uh, the specific story, and we're making sure that TED Radio Hour feels organic wherever it is. It's the same thing with Invisibilia, by the way. You can't really tell when you listen to Invisibilia that it's actually intended to go on multiple platforms. So story, character, and voice. Each one, whether it's a compelling story or idea, engaging characters, perhaps that character is your host. Most hosts think that they're characters. We, we try to teach them how to get into that space. And a unique voice that is specific to you. You know, the world is filled with crap. Podcasting is filled with crap. There are 300,000 podcasts, 100 languages. There are 14 million episodes of podcasts available. Every conversation we have starts with, why should there be 300,001? And that's where we start the conversation. It's not because I want to do it. Is, is, there, is there a need for this to exist? And you can do some of this definitional work for something that's existed for 20 years. You can have a group of people who may think they understand it, and I guarantee you that if you sit them down and make it right out, they won't agree. Right? So um, as you're thinking about these concepts, you can apply them to the work perhaps you've been inspired by today or you're already doing, and I guarantee you it will help to make, you, make things more clear. Um, now, one of the things I did not talk about was the industry, like industry questions, which I'm happy to take, but I'd rather we do those in like a Q&A rather than me just kind of guessing what you care about and what you want to hear. So I think with that, I'll stop my basic uh, presentation and we'll switch to Q&A, which I will answer anything and I'll talk about anything. I'll talk in real, real candidly. I don't care I'm being recorded. So if you have questions, or I'm happy to answer them, um, either about uh, work I've done in the past or kind of industry trends or whatever it is, I'm happy to, to talk about that. So thank you. talking about voice, I think you said there were two things. And yeah. I've only got one written down. Um, one is that one was, there's two belong? very different definitions of voice. One is yep. that you, you, you're constructing your idea. You're not passive about expressing that idea. You actually are very active in making sure that you are um, making sure that your perspective on it is clear. Right? And the second, is, the second definition of voice is that you belong the place you're at. Right? It doesn't sound like you know, there's so many, you know, 
Uh, BBC has done it. I know ABC has done it. I'm guessing they have. NPR did it. Uh, initially, when we started NPR podcast, we were dumping everything we could into podcasts, just and automating it. So a human being never even heard this stuff. It was cranking this stuff out. And we thought that was going to be our podcast strategy. And eventually we realized nobody wants to listen to this because it doesn't sound organic. And so we ended up... Um, uh, I, was, I started a podcasting at NPR in 2005. And a couple years later, I kind of walked away from it for a while um, and was doing other things and then came back to it in like 2012 or 2013. And one of the first things I did is our podcast portfolio at NPR had grown to 135 podcasts. We couldn't even, and we had podcasts that people didn't even know who was making it or if a machine was making it. It was just showing up. We had a, one podcast, we had two podcasts that the person's boss didn't even know that they were creating a podcast, right? And so the first thing we did is we made rules of what should be a podcast, and one of them was that unique voice. It had to feel like it was belonged in that space. We cut the portfolio down to 29 shows and doubled our audience in two months. The reason we did is instead of when you went to, the, to Stitcher or to the podcast app, instead of seeing this massive list, it was a screenshot and a half. And we, we didn't pick that number. And at first, we were a little scared of what we were doing. And everyone told me I was an idiot inside of NPR for doing this. I was destroying podcasting. And I said, I just believe that if you're simple and deliberate and providing an experience that makes sense and is unique and belongs there, that it'll make a difference. So that's kind of a long version of an answer for you. But sure. Um, Thank you for offering to answer any questions. So, sure. What's, in your opinion, what's the most underrated and what's the most overrated podcast out there? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, overrated and underrated. Um, I'm going to dodge that question quite handily <laughs> by saying, no, I'm going to, I'll tell you what, I'll dodge it and then I'll give you a real answer. Uh, the dodge is, is I think your answer is going to be different than my answer. It's going to be this uh, different from her compared to him. Podcasting and the thing that, that I know you all realize, but you have to think about it from a customer's perspective. You know, I, I mentioned my parents. My mother has, I think, two podcasts she listens to about sewing, quilting. My dad is a woodworker. He has a woodworking podcast, which I still to this day don't understand because how can you have an audio podcast about woodworking? It just doesn't make sense to me, but they do and he loves it. Uh, to them, my parents, podcasting is like one thing. You know, it's that. They're not interested in other things. And so I think that what someone, one person might enjoy, uh, someone else is going to think is trash. And I think one of the things that happens a lot in podcasting, and one of the reasons that podcasting, you know, in the United States, people talk about podcasting is great. It's, uh, it's a quarter of U.S. adults listen to podcasts once a month or more, but everybody thinks that's great, but 75% don't. And the reason they don't is because podcasting is controlled by a small group of people who get to decide what's cool and what's not cool. And in such a democratized space, why is that that way? That makes no sense to me at all. And if we ever want to see podcasting expand, it starts with getting out of our own heads and stopping deciding what's cool and not cool, or what's good work and what's not good work. So that's the Dodge version of that. So specifically, with the most underrated podcast and most overrated podcast, I would say the most underrated podcast is something I created. Uh, no. <laughs> um, it's actually, I'm going to tell you, it is. It's called um, uh, Ponzi Supernova. We've released it as a podcast. It's actually been kind of all over the charts on iTunes. It's, uh, it's a story that starts with a couple of tapes we acquired of Bernie Madoff explaining his side of his story. And we tell the real side of the story, and it's, but it's the only time he's ever been recorded on tape. So that's an underrated podcast. That, uh, and also is a dodge, but you're going to let me away with it. Uh, 
overrated podcast. I would say, I'm not going to pick, I'm going to pick a kind of podcast because I think there's a bigger point here. There's a huge trend in podcasting, which I'm hoping is dying, which is just taking a celebrity and putting them behind a mic and letting them talk for six episodes. And I hate them all. I hate them all, with the exception of Malcolm Gladwell's, I, I really like. Though he's kind of a thinker, he's not just a, you know, but you know, actresses, how many movie stars? There's one, recently there was a, a two different podcasts relating to The Bachelor, the TV show The Bachelor, that were at the top of the charts. Those people, they're there, they go for a couple episodes and they stop and I hate it. I hate it. I think it's terrible. It's cheap. It's, it's unimaginative. It's just a milking celebrity and I, you know, I'm glad somebody likes it, but it's not me. So that, that's the best answer I'm going to give. Then two beers later, I'll give you the real answer. <laughs> Other questions? Okay, this is a bad-tempered question. Um, look, I, I love your presentation and thank you. And I was thinking about when you were talking about getting people to pitch their ideas in ten words or less, I was thinking about some of the great novels and, you know, Tolstoy trying to pitch war and peace. And then I realised, well, it would have been fine. It would, it would have just been... You know, Napoleon invades Russia, lots of people die. But look, my question is a different one. Um, 300,000 podcasts. Mm -hmm. On one hand, that's fantastic. Yeah, It's a whole new generation, a whole new audience that are listening. But I kind of get a sort of feeling of nausea at the same time because that's 300,000 podcasts, a lot of which are about exactly what you've described, telling personal stories, concentrating on story, character, voice. At the same time, we've got now a generation in your country and in our country, I think, too, not just a generation, but a public that's completely disengaged from the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. It's not interested in what the mainstream media has to say anymore about politics. And that's a central part of the, you know, the kind of predicament that's produced your president, whatever you think about him, and the political culture that, you know, that's important for all of us. So I kind of wonder if we haven't heard too many personal stories now. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there, a, is there a podcast like, can you imagine a podcast that would actually start to talk about politics in a way that would appeal to the podcast audience, which is not just about us all asking each other about our innermost experiences. Mm -hmm. Haven't we had enough of that? Um, um, I think you're, you're right uh, in that um, there's a lot of people telling not just personal stories, but their own ideas. And there's some pretty heinous shit on the internet, including in podcasting. Horrible, horrible things. People saying things, making jokes about things, having conversations that deserve shame. And I, I, I think that the meritocracy of ideas is, is actually so prevalent in podcasting that it prevents people from discovering things other than, you know, uh, we did this, I'm gonna, this, is, this is actually uh, relative to your answering your question. Um, we did this research of looking at taking people who don't listen to podcasting but should because of their, their, their media use, um, and we showed them the top uh, iTunes charts and said, please listen to these. And, um, uh, or we're going to give you little segments to listen to. And though people in this room could look at the top charts and spend hours talking about the differences between each one, to these people, they're like, it's all the same. You know, we think it's so diverse, it's actually all the same. 
And that, uh, one, one guy referred to it as, that's chocolate chip, that's chocolate chunk, that's chocolate swirl, that's mocha chocolate. It's all chocolate. Now, what if you don't like chocolate? What if you're allergic to chocolate? There's not a lot in that world that presents itself to you. So I hear you. I also would say the 300,000 isn't enough. That there's, uh, there's a whole slices of life and slices of worldviews that are not reflected in podcasting. And that um, if somebody wants to create a podcast that talks about politics in a way that can kind of speak to a group of people and doesn't use narrative to do it, which there are already things like that, um, someone wants to do it, the great thing is, is for, you know, sit down, hit record, have an internet connection, and it's a podcast an hour later. Right? I think that's the best I can do to tell you, answer that. Sure, yeah, one more? It's kind of a two-pronged question. You, working at NPR and now Audible, you're working, you have, mm -hmm. and uh, working for two places that have done more than anything to define like the voice of podcasting. And so I suppose for Australian podcast hopefuls or current podcasts, is there any point in trying to match those voices and those sort of templates for successful podcasts? Or should we be speaking just to Australians? This is a problem Australian media has or Australian companies have too. We have such a small market here. So we either act extremely niche or extremely broad and sometimes neither is particularly interesting. Um, mm -hmm. So what's your advice there? I will give you um, an answer to this question, which is what I'm here to do. Um, it's a little bit nuanced though. I think it kind of goes back to the beginning when I was talking about what is success. If you want to be the next Jada Boomrod or you want to be the next Ira Glass or the next Roman Mars, whoever, right, you're going to be tempted to do something that is going to be a slightly different flavor variation off of what they do. Um, if you want to be an international hit, you know, you're going to have to appeal to people internationally. You know, there's a chance that something could hit that way that sounds very Australian outside of just an accent, but there's a, ch a great chance you'll end up kind of compromising and diluting your own voice. I think the first conversation starts with what is success? Do I want to be something that makes people's heartbeats a little faster but does it here in this country? Then that's going to lead you in a different direction than I want to make someone's heartbeat faster who's sitting in London or in New York City or in wherever. Um, and I think that you have to start there one of the things that amazed me when I was listening, I spent a whole bunch of time asking a bunch of people, send me your favorite podcast, Australian people, send me your favorite podcasts so I can listen to them. And so many of the podcasts I heard were speaking to somebody else and not me, and that's actually okay. That there were conversations happening that people would understand. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was sent off, because I do print writing as well, sent off to review the Twilight movie when it first came out. And I took my nephew with me, who at the time was 14, and we were in a room with the two of us and 497 women and young girls who were watching this movie. And they were seeing a different movie than the two of us were. <laughs> like, someone would raise their eyebrow and they'd be just like, oh! <gasps> it was a whole thing going on with that movie that I didn't understand, right? Um, Wonder Woman is another example of this. My wife saw it last night with her friend, and she's texting me that she was crying when she watched it. Right? Because of watching fierce, powerful women who were motivated by love, not by conflict, as many superheroes are. We had this big conversation. I'd seen the movie the week before. I'm like, it was great. It meant something completely different to her. And the reason this comes back to you is like, who are you making your content for? 
if you want to make it for other people who kind of look at the world the same way you do or come from the same place you do, I think that's honorable, right? But you, then, then you set your expectations accordingly. And I think that don't everyone, you know, the world has an hourglass, the world has a Roman Mars, the world has uh, um, Jada Boomrod, now it's time for it to have you. And that's why it's so important that you do something that's true to yourself and you have set expectations of who you want to hear that voice. So I think it's the best answer I could possibly give you. Short of don't do what they do. Be inspired by what they do, but don't do what they do. That was Eric Newsom giving the keynote at the 2017 Audiocraft Conference. This series was recorded on the day by ABCRN and produced by Beck Fari. Music by James Milsom. If you want to know when the next episode of our podcast drops, hit subscribe, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and sign up to our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au.